Blog Talk Radio. I tell you, I, I don't know. Mm. It just doesn't, you know, it doesn't look good. 
and I, I don't like her, haven't liked her, don't care to like her, um, but, um, She's got a lot of bad baggage. And it turns out that a lot of these people don't like her, too. Hillary's favorability uh, numbers sharply drop in a new poll. So let's, uh, you can read that if you'd like. Okay, I have Maybe. something on Scott Walker. Yeah, they, we'll, we'll bring up that critter next. Well, we have the cast of clowns. Yeah, really. Hillary Clinton's favorable numbers have dropped once again in the newest polls for NBC and the Wall Street Journal. Tonight's poll shows Clinton with a 37% approval rating and a 48% disapproval rating. And while the approval is higher than the Republican presidential candidates, so is the disapproval. This is Clinton's lowest approval rating in the poll since 2008. As, if, as of this January, Clinton's approval rate was as high as 45%, and her disapproval was only at 37%. The last time this poll was taken, just a month ago, Clinton's approval rate was 44, and her disapproval was at 40%. Meanwhile, the man topping the GOP presidential field, Donald Trump, has an approval rating of 27% and a disapproval rating of 56%. Well, you can imagine, imagine all of the people that are running against him, uh -huh. that party, have near 0% uh, percent approval rate, you know, 3%, 1%, you know. That's really funny. Well, I was going to talk but a little bit. You can read the full poll here, but there's one. There's also a new Fox poll with Clinton as favorite Democrat candidate for 51% of this poll, which is reported at low for uh, Clinton. Okay. But let's see. The, I'm just curious. Weren't you curious what the poll said? Mm, I'd like to know where all the others are. Let's see. Quickie, quickie. Yeah. Oh, it's a it's a questionnaire. It's a no, no, it's the uh, let's see. Da, 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 da. That's what it is. Yeah. Yes. Uh, mm -hmm. uh, so that's nothing that we can really read to people. No. So let me Wisconsin Governor Scott Walker, one of the leading Republican presidential candidates, was asked by host Brian Kilmeade whether or not he thought the minimum wage should be a living wage. And this is how Walker responded. I don't want to fight about the minimum wage. I want to lift everybody up, and the way to do that is through education. You don't do that through a government dictate. You say, let's get people the education, the skills, and the qualifications they need for careers that pay far more than the minimum wage. That should be our ultimate goal. People will be better off if they get the skills they need <coughs> to be worth more to their employer, and they're making more than $15 an hour. We, we well, those certainly aren't the words of an educational champion. It's not the worst quote ever. Walker has certainly said and done much worse about issues important to workers, but if you truly believe the education is more important to improving the lives of workers than having a good minimum wage, then why would you do this? Walker proposed a state budget that would slash $300 million from the University of Wisconsin over two years and cut $127 million from public primary schools. 
The state budget also continues a freeze on special education aid for the eighth year in a row and erodes teacher licensing standards by requiring the State Department of Education to give permits to teachers who haven't completed a bachelor's degree. Well, also, according to Think Progress, Wisconsin has the biggest decrease in pupil spending of any state during Walker's term in office. So if you claim that education is the key to the living wage and you cut education spending, what does that say about your commitment to a living wage? He's the real, lying. The real irony of Scott Walker's messy um, personal finances. Oh, yeah, I forgot about that. We saw that yesterday. I didn't read this yesterday. I know we talked about it, oh. though. Mm -hmm. The presidential candidate, um, hang on one second, I'll go right to it. Uh, let's see. The, okay. the finances of Wisconsin Governor George, George S. Scott Walker uh, got a rather stern once over from National Journal on Monday. Walker has two credit card debts of more than $10,000 apiece on separate cards and is paying an eye-popping 27.24% interest rate on one of them. The journal harumped oh, before quickly lasering in on the irony. The Republican presidential candidate has cast himself as both a fiscal conservative leader and a penny-pinching everyman on the campaign trail, often touting his love for of Kohl's, the discount uh, department store. Well, Walker isn't the first Republican presidential hopeful to get this treatment either. Back in June, the New York Times took Senator Mark Rubio for a Florida task for striking low savings rate and some household purchases of questionable wisdom. This is a steeply silly genre of journalism. It treats people the vast majority of Americans grapple with a vaguely scandalous, and it implicitly assumes the same rule of thumb that should guide household budgets should also guide the federal budget, which is a catastrophically wrong. More to the point, other details in the journal piece offer a brief look at a presidential candidate of relatively modest means. Walker listed only six investments worth between 1000 and 15000 a whole life insurance plan worth between 15000 and 50000 and a deferred compensation plan from Milwaukee County worth between 15000 and 50000 the journal continued. Walker received $45,000 advance for a book in the last year and looks like his annual salary since assuming the governorship in 2011 has been around 140000 That's certainly a lot of income compared to most Americans. It puts Walker just below the threshold for the top 10%, but it's obviously nothing compared to the fortunes of Jeb Bush and Hillary Clinton. That gets, some, gets at something poignant about Walker the politician and, by extension, Walker the man. While most all presidential candidates and politicians have a significant amount of socioeconomic distance from the median American, Walker has less than most. Besides his income and wealth, Walker came from modest beginnings as a preacher's kid in a small Wisconsin manufacturing town. He attended Marquette University in Milwaukee but didn't finish his degree, passing on one of the key status symbols that American elites used to separate themselves from the back. And yet few Republicans and certainly no other Republican presidential candidate 
has been so ferociously focused on grinding everyday workers into the ground. Like any good conservative, Walker pushed massive tax cuts for the well-to-do uh, through Wisconsin state budget, creating a hole he now he's now trying to fill, a slice uh, by slicing education spending. But he also drove a blistering and brutal successful push to crush Wisconsin's public sector unions, followed by right-to-work laws that will likely cripple the state's private unions as well. Nor does it look like Walker did this because Republicans and business interests were demanding it. He did it because he wanted to, as a matter of ideology. An explanation probably lies in the unique and poisonous way the history of race and class intersection intersected in the Milwaukee political milieu Walker came from. In the early 20th century, large numbers of black Americans migrated from the south to northern urban centers. But no sooner had they put down roots than the mid-century collapse of manufacturing arrived, sucking away jobs and bringing poverty to the cities. Black Americans have never been permitted to build up the wealth that white Americans had. And along with the uh, after-effects of slavery and the social consequences of segregation, they were initially excluded from policies like Social Security and the GI Bill, which helped build the white middle class. And racist policies like redlining and the construction of the highway system destroyed many of their neighborhoods and prevented them from accessing areas of economic vibrancy. So when the white middle class fled to the suburbs, the poorer black population could not follow. Uh, what set up Reaganite's white suburbs, uh, which surrounded and disdained the urban interiors of impoverished African Americans and all the vicious politics that followed, funny thing, as Alex McClellan laid out um, uh, in a 2014 profile of Walker, was that this process came a few decades later to Milwaukee, and the future governor cuts his political teeth as a member of Milwaukee's fleeing white upper-middle class just as his conflict was yeah. reaching its apex. So it should come as no surprise that those political sector jobs Walker helped crush have also been one of the great economic havens where black Americans can actually earn a decent living. Crushing the racist. Okay, for decades, American microeconomic policy has done a terrible job of providing enough work to keep everyone employed. And that's, that introduced uh, a bottom-up desperation that tickled higher, trickled higher and higher over the years. And on top of that, while well, America has a, a hidden welfare state for the rich and the upper middle class, its explicit social safety net is skimpy and targeted at the poorest Americans. This creates perverse circumstances in which all Americans in the middle of the pack feel left behind. Mm -hmm. While they see people with a different skin color and alien cultural habits, habits often shaped by poverty, receiving aid, however grossly inadequate. And more and more, American society has become a brute, uh, a brute contest in which the groups of varying power must trample one another for the scraps that fall from the elite's table. And a sort of divide-and-conquer effect in populations that should be uniting over common interests and yep. common foes has a long history in U.S. labor struggles. When people find themselves outside the elite inner circle and see themselves in a zero-sum economic game uh, with impoverished subcultures that look and act different from them, 
the likes of Scott Walker is often what emerges from the ferment. Yeah, I believe it. Past as well. Okay. America's top union leader just destroyed Scott Walker. Let's see if I can. This is the one here. I know, that's that's not the one that I had. Wisconsin Governor Scott Walker is one of the, well, he's a real conservative, that's for sure, is one of the most hardcore right-wing extremists in America. His slash-and-burn policies have gutted Wisconsin, workers' collective bargaining rights, defunded Planned Parenthood, and more, and more, all of which has made him a prime punching bag for progressives around the country. For some reason, the Republican zealot is hell-bent on conducting a doomed campaign for president in 2016, a painfully obvious fact which he revealed Monday morning after months of tedious teasing, including one recent public appearance in which he bizarrely compared peaceful pro-worker activists in his home state to ISIS terrorists. To be clear, Walker has basically zero chance at winning the White House. His charisma level hovers somewhere beneath a block of Wisconsin cheese. (laughs) (laughs) Frankly, even comparing the man to a piece of cheese is a little insulting to his home state's allotted dairy farms. All evidence suggests that he would really, really bad at selling his (coughs) really, really bad ideas to the American public in a general election. But now that he is officially in the race, AFL-CL President Richard Trumker has issued one of the best press releases in political history in response to Walker's announcement. Written on behalf of the union's federation of 12 million-plus members, Trumka declared, Scott Walker is a national disgrace. That's it. That's his whole statement. And, yeah, that about sums it up. Hi, Scott. Bye, Scott. I agree with that. He is. He's, he's, he's a disgrace. He really is. Now, you know, now here's, now, uh, there's, so, there's a lot of funny stuff here tonight, but I wanted to show that this was funny. That uh, I, get it, I guess this really came from uh, Coke, uh, the Coke boys, um, when he said, yeah. He said, Charles Koch, for those of you who know the Koch brothers, he says, I don't have too much power because I don't completely control the government yet. Imagine that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And when he was interviewed. Now, this is what he said. Uh, oh, Rick Perry, his favorite uh, puppet. Uh, mm-hmm. Anti-government activists and petrochemical billionaires, Charles and David Koch, and their network of political organizations, spent an estimated $300 million to push conservative candidates and causes in 2014 and planned to spend almost $900 million to do the same thing in 2016. But in an interview published Tuesday, Charles Koch dismissed claims that he had much political power as ludicrous, asking, if I had all this power, why, why aren't the many things I would change getting changed? His uh, statement suggests that he lacks political power, but he and his brother have built and bankrolled a network of political organizations that rival the size of any political party. Hmm. The elder Koch 
made the, the state made the argument in an exclusive interview with Washington Post national reporter Matea Gold. One of the small number of journalists invited to cover selected portions of the Brothers Freedom Partners Conference for wealthy conservative donors and the Republican presidential hopefuls this past weekend at the St. Regis Monarch Beach Luxury Resort in California. Asked what he says to those who believe you have too much influence, Charles Koch told Gold, wow, believe me, if I had too much influence, a lot of things would change, just like the very things we've been talking about. The trend toward a two-tiered society and the trajectory we're on uh, that's uh, taking us there in criminal justice. Well, while Koch is correct that he does not personally control the entire government apparatus, he significantly understates his relative influence in the political system. In the 2012 elections, the most expensive in the nation's history, the Democratic National Committee, they spent about $319 million. The Republican National Committee, $404 million, combined to spend less than the Coat Network promised 2016 budget. President Obama's entire re-election campaign spent less than $684 million. So, Coke, if you combine the Democratic National Committee, the 319, and the 404 of the Republican Committee, that's uh, $723 million, and the Cokes are going to spend more than that. Nine hundred million bucks. You believe that? Through Freedom, through Freedom Partners, a tax-exempt chamber of commerce in American Encore, formerly the Center to Protect uh, pro Patient Rights. Patient Rights. Yeah, the Cokes help distribute millions to bankroll conservative political groups. Indeed, part of the reason that the changes Charles Koch would like to see have not come to fruition could be that, seemingly, in order to help elect Republican candidates. His group has funded social conservative causes that he and his brother claim they are against. But the Kochs have also built an operation that in many ways rivals the official Republican Party infrastructure. Their Americans for Prosperity is working to create a ground game built around voter data in the style of the vaunted Obama 2012 campaign. The Libraire Initiative is actively working to sell the Latino community on free market ideals while opposing executive action to stop deportation of undocumented families. Their generation opportunity has catfished millions of millennials who liked abstract concepts like being American and the Constitution on Facebook, and their various entities spent heavily to defeat Democratic senators um, in 2014 and give Republicans a majority in both chambers of Congress. The brothers' influence with Republican candidates is evident by the number of them who have flocked to Freedom Partners and Americas for Prosperity events, earnestly seeking their support. Now, Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell, Republican Kentucky, promised a co-group last year that if the GOP won a majority, it wouldn't waste time debating gosh darn minimum wage increases. The chairman of the Senate Small Business Committee has publicly hailed Charles and David Koch as among the most patriotic Americans ever. Oh, really? And while President Obama, who the Kochs and their organization spent millions to try to defeat in 2012, has provided a check against 
Koch-backed efforts to repeal the Affordable Care Act, deregulate fossil fuels, and tax cuts for the wealthy, the congressional um, majority that Koch helped elect have already advanced his brother's agenda. Just last month, it allowed the expiration of the Export-Import Bank Charter at the urging of Freedom Partners and Americans for Prosperity. The latter group hailed it as a major win for taxpayers here, right? Yeah, so, anyway, the la di da the Cokes are killing us, and it's a sad day. Every uh, week, the union does the winners and losers of the week. This week, the winners, Pittsburgh's working families, have the city council voted to require employers to offer paid sick days. The new rule would benefit nearly 50,000 workers. The runner-up is Kellogg ready-to-eat cereal workers, who will not only see improvements in pay and benefits, but will also see increased job security after voting to ratify a new contract. The losers, Chris Christie, for saying that teachers' unions were a destructive force and deserved a punch in the face. Runner-up is the Pennsylvania employers, after a new analysis suggests that because of wage theft, Almost 400,000 individual low-wage low workers get paid less than minimum wage in any given week. That's from Pennsylvania. It says, almost every major poll shows Bernie Sanders challenging or defeating Clinton and, and Republicans. Here's why. American politics is never static. Similar to the um, value system of certain presidential candidates, it is never ending state of constant evolution. For this reason, Dewey defeats Truman. Uh, we still seek no wider war, and they hate our freedoms, our time capsules of American history seen through the lens of hindsight and reflection. We now have our first African-American president in his second term. We have an embassy in Cuba. The gay marriage is a right. American politics in the world can change in the blink of an eye. Well, ironically, there are certain liberal voters in America today more interested in sharing memes on social media, mocking their political rivals, than in, the, in actually rallying around a politician who's a genuine, authentic embodiment of their knowledge, a knowledge value system. To these people, Bernie Sanders can possibly win, can't possibly win, even though he championed gay rights when others needed to evolve. And even though he voted against Iraq, when others deemed to vote a mistake. When others deemed their vote a mistake. Luckily, there are a great many other voters willing to imagine a future without Wall Street greed and rampant income inequality. Fortunately, Bernie Sanders can become president and has replaced, I like him, but he can't win. Democrats who are proud of their progressive values are filling arenas to hear Sanders speak in a direct manner. On, conchi, on contentious issues like Keystone XL and the Trans-Pacific Partnership Agreement. While the FBI is currently investing the, investigating the email security of one candidate, Bernie Sanders is narrowing Clinton's lead nationally and defeating Republicans in other polls like Brent, Brent Radowski writes in The Hill, the fact that Sanders beats Walker by six to seven points, depending on whether all voters or likely voters are counted, 
A near landslide margin in general election makes it clear that Sanders' surge is more than a surge against Donald Trump, but a move that makes him competitive with all Republican candidates. Polls once extolling Hillary Clinton's enormous lead over Sanders are now dwindling for the same reason Sanders beats Republicans in various other polls. Americans have had enough of the dynasty, scandals, wars, and the Wall Street corruption. I will be voting for Bernie Sanders because I, too, have had enough of endless wars, and Bernie says, I'll be damned if more Americans are sent back to fight in the Middle East. I'll also be voting for Sanders because, like the polls illustrating his lightning-fast surge, more and more Americans have had enough with the two-party system that doesn't give people the choice. I want my Democratic nominee to vote against counterinsurgency wars, and vehemently oppose an environmental disaster in the making like Keystone XL, and not evolve toward the most politically expedient position available at times. As for data indicating Bernie Sanders can't win the Democratic nomination, the Huffington Post explains how quickly he's narrowed the lead in New Hampshire in an article entitled, Bernie Sanders is Narrowing the Gap with Hillary Clinton in the Granite State. Oh. Uh, the article goes on for a yeah. further, and we don't have to read it. So, but just so you know, Bernie is ahead of of uh, Hillary, and uh, hey, that's the way it is. But he also said, today the United States is number one in billionaires, number one in corporate profits, number one in CEO salaries, number one in childhood poverty and number one in income and wealth inequality in the industrialized world. That's Bernie Sanders. Oh, sad. He said that. When it comes to the pace, pace of annual pay increases, the top 1% wages grew 138% since 1979, while wages for the bottom grew 90%. Oh, while wages for the bottom, nine, excuse me, while wages for the bottom 90% grew 15%. So I wonder what happened in 1979. Hmm. Well, that was that was the year of the embargo, the year of... Uh, um, the oil embargo? Yeah. And um, that was... Uh, what's his name? was in the office there. Uh, uh, Carter. And... You know, just and, and inflation was out of this world. It was going crazy. Uh, so, yeah, um, things were a bad year. A few days ago, economist Joseph Stiglitz said something quite provocative. We've been shaping our society to create people who are more selfish. The eye is drawn to the last part, create people who are more selfish. My takeaway message is at the beginning, we've been shaping our society. In the same speech, he repeats a line from one of his books. The reason the invisible hand was often invisible was that it wasn't there. He reminds us that generally markets do not solve our problems. Nobody ever said that they were fair, that they would lead to distribution of income that was socially acceptable. Markets fail more often than we suppose. In the post-war period, workers' wages increased in direct proportion to increases in productivity. Then in the mid-1970s, wages abruptly decoupled from productivity. 
The message of this figure is that wages adjusted for inflation would be twice what they are now if workers had continued to share improvements in productivity. The top of our society has prospered, while more than 90% of us have stayed even or fallen behind. This has consequences, as the economist says. In the long run, consumption cannot increase faster than income. Income has been flat for a long run. Eric Reiner wrote a terrific book inspired by the question that troubled him as a Norwegian teenager on a class trip to Peru. Why does a barber in his native Norway make a comfortable middle-class living while an equally deserving barber in a low-wage Peru makes so much less? The barbering profession has made only modest gains in productivity since the introduction of metal scissors in Roman times. The difference for barbers in Peru and Norway is the prosperity of their customers. My father was a dentist in Michigan. Most of his patients worked in auto plants where their unions negotiated dental benefits. My father was very adept businessman and compassionate to his patients and worked hard. He knew exactly what he had accomplished through his own work and what had been given to him by circumstance. He had no doubt for one minute that the prosperity he enjoyed was directly connected to the UAW contract with General Motors. Nick Hammer, Nick Hanauer, a high-tech entrepreneur in the Seattle area, he says as clearly as it can be that the magic of success in business is having prosperous customers who can buy your product. An entrepreneur, he did not... As an entrepreneur, he did not create jobs. In his words, entrepreneurs want to create revenue with as few jobs as possible. Customers bring demand. Demand causes business to hire. Prosperity comes from customers who can pay for your product. We hear the legend of Henry Ford that he paid $5 a day per day to set high-wage standards in the community. Ford did well not because he was generous and beneficent, in many ways, Henry Ford was a horrible, beastly man. He did well because customers in his community were prosperous enough to buy Ford cars. Ross Perot may be a better example than Henry Ford. As an industrialist, Ross Perot knew exactly what NAFTA and other so-called free trade agreements would do. As an industrialist, he would be compelled by market forces to move production to Mexico, close facilities in the U.S., reduce wages paid to workers in the community where he lived. As a patriot, he wanted trade policies that raise living standards, not lowering them. He ran for president, at least in part, to thwart a flawed trade policy that would force him to hurt America. The common theme is we all do better when we all do better. So this article goes on, but that's yeah, the truth. But that's all right. That's true. Um, Nathan Rothschild said, I care not what puppet is placed upon the throne of England to rule the empire on which the sun never sets. The man who controls Britain's money supply controls the British empire, and I control the British money supply. And uh, he also controls the U.S. money. So well, he's not him, but his heirs. Yeah, he's, you know, he's part of the Fed. Um, interesting, huh? Yeah, yeah half of uh, Hillary's charitable 
Giving in 2014 went to their own foundation. Whoa. I told you, she looked around and said, who's most deserving? Uh, and and she and Bill said, we are. Uh, uh, half of Bill and Hillary Clinton's charitable giving last year went to the Bill, Hillary, and Chelsea Clinton Foundation, according to a, revenue, a review of the latest financial disclosure from their private foundation. The Clintons earned more than $28 million in 2014 and um, claimed about uh, $3 million in income as charitable tax deductions. Okay. According to tax returns released by Hillary Clinton's campaign last Friday, the campaign emphasized Clinton's charitable uh, giving in a press statement saying that it represented 10.8% of her income in 2014. But roughly half of that money, $1.8 million, appears to have been channeled to the Bill Hillary and Chelsea Foundation. Ah, oh, wow. And according to the tax return, the Clintons gave $3 million in 2014 to the Clinton Family Foundation, a small private foundation that the family uses as a pass-through to other charities. Huh. Well, records show the CFF dispersed $3.7 million in 2014 including $1.8 million to the Bill, Hillary, and Chelsea Clinton Foundations. While that contribution was the family's largest by a significant margin that year, they made numerous smaller donations to other groups, including the University of Arkansas and the American Island Ireland Fund and, and the American Friends of the Perez Center. I, why are these? I don't know. The $1.8 million contribution is also uh, by far the largest annual donation the Clintons have made to the Bill Hillary and Clinton and Chelsea Foundation in recent years. In the past years combined, they gave a total of $1.1 million to the organization. The last large donation was in 2008 when they gave a million. While the Clintons do not receive direct compensation from the Bill Hillary and Chelsea Clinton Foundation, they do benefit from travel, and many of their longtime aides have served on its payroll. Yeah. Da, 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 they deduct da, all their expenses. Oh, yeah, yeah. They put all their expenses there. Oh, they can deduct that. And do. Can you turn that light down? Oh. I have to ask Leo to turn a light down here. It was going right in my eye. It says here, you know, Adolf Hitler and... and, uh, and uh, said, all you have to do is tell them they are being attacked and denounce the pacifists for lack of patriotism and exposing the country to danger. It works the same way in any country. Well, that's what uh, George Bush did. You're yeah, either with Herman me Goring, or against me, remember? Yeah, Herman Goring. And you're un-American. During the Nuremberg War Crimes Trials. Huh. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's what he said. All you have to do is do that, and they did it. And that's why we're in those. That's why we got such a shitty, yeah. horrible economy. Oh my God! Look at this picture. Yeah. Oh, I wish you could see this picture, folks. Well, it says here that anyone. This is a, a picture of uh, Chris Christie. With huge, looks like hero sandwiches, or. No, it's a big uh, fruitcake. Oh, they're fruitcakes. Fruit <laughs> I thought it was. Uh, yeah, he's. he's Ripped apart a fruitcake and he's eating it. Oh, that's disgusting. And, uh, anyone caught with pot, even if it's just a seed, should serve at least 10 years as a mandatory minimum. 
If people have no self-discipline, it's the government's job to step in and change their behavior. Chris Christie said that on July 30th this year. I mean, there's a guy who's significantly significantly overweight talking about other people's self-discipline? I mean, really? Uh, let's see. Uh, <laughs> my friend, uh, Fred, you better be careful. Hopefully, a bus parks on the stupid. Yeah. So, blank. Okay. It turns out Fox News uh, delighted uh, Mr. Some uh, Trump. Donald Trump with bombshell news right before the debate. And what yeah, is that? Right. Yeah, that he's uh, that he's way ahead. Hmm. And. Um, uh, the billionaire state mogul polling at the highest numbers ever with Hillary Clinton at new lows. And according to the poll, Trump is uh, clearly in first place with 26% favoring him, and f- former Florida Governor Jeb Bush is in second at 15%. Donald Trump and Bush are the only candidates to have double digits. Wisconsin Governor Scott Walker is at 9%. Neurosurgeon and pundit Ben Carson at 7%. In Texas, Senator Ted Cruz and farmer Arkansas Governor Mike Huckabee are both at 6% each. The All the candidates are 5% or below. The poll attests to the meteoric rise of Trump, who was only at 11% just a month ago, but he has now soared to an 11-point lead. His 26% is also the highest number any GOP candidate has obtained since Fox News began polling for the 2016 Republican nomination in December 2013. In addition, 30% said they would definitely vote for Tr- 34% said they would definitely vote for Trump, as opposed to just 8% who said the same thing two months ago. Trump's negatives are also falling. Only 33% said they would never vote for Trump, compared with 59% in June. Oh. Uh, his likability quota is coming along. Meanwhile? The, the bad news for Hillary, who recorded her lowest numbers so far during the primary season. While her numbers were still high, 51%, she showed Vermont socialist giant Bernie Sanders uh, gaining on her polling at 22%. Uh, Clinton was a 59% two weeks ago and 61% a month ago. And uh, third place is Vice President Joe Biden, who's polling at 13%. So in brief, Trump's at his highest numbers ever and has continued to pick up support. Clinton, meanwhile, is losing support to a socialist Ben and Jerry's country who wants to turn America into Scandinavia and to a vice president who makes Mr. Bean look like William Jennings Bryan. And all this before the first major Republican debate. Yeah. And to all the media pundits who said Trump would never win in a matchup with Clinton, well, there's your rebuttal. <laughs> Interesting. I think, uh, I think he's going to do all right. Well, that was from the Conservative Tribune, by the way. So, let's see what else we wonderful we got. Did you know that police are killing Native Americans at a higher rate than any race and nobody is talking about it? What do you think of that? Hmm. Oh, we should bring that up. I wasn't aware of that. I wasn't either until I read this article. But, um, 
I don't know why they're not talking about it because there's Americans are up in arms right now over the near epidemic death of deaths of African Americans at the hands of people, uh, police, and rightfully so. African Americans make up only 13% of the population, and they are the victims in 26% of all police shootings. That is nearly three times the rate of whites. The outrage by the black the number of Black Lives Matter movement is founded in statistical evidence which shows that the system inherently and with extreme bias disproportionately targets blacks. That being said, there is one group who not only is talking about... No one is talking no about... No one is, I'm sorry, no one is talking about that is targeted more than everyone else. That racial group most likely to be killed by law enforcement is Native Americans. Well, Native Americans only make up uh, 0.8% of the... Um, uh, of the population, they make up 1.9% of all police killings. Huh. Yeah. Despite gaining citizenship rights in 1924, Native Americans have yet to see the day they enjoy benefits of a nation which boosts both liberty and justice for all. Unsettling reports of unfair treatment towards Native peoples by law enforcement are not isolated incidents. Rather, they are epidemic of a deeply discriminatory justice system. Native American men are admitted to prison at four times the rate of white men, and Native women at a six-fold the rate of white women. Additionally, Native Americans are the racial group most likely to be killed by law enforcement. Wow. See, we didn't, find, we didn't know about that. No. Nope. Where is the outrage in the media for Native Americans? It's certainly not due on the lack of protest by number Native Lives Matter movement, as there are many of those. In fact, several of Native American activists within the movement have been killed by police, causing even more outrage in the community. So, earlier this month, Native American activist Rexdale W. Henry, 53, was arrested for failure to pay a traffic fine. Five days later, on July 14, Henry would be found dead in an Ishova County, Mississippi, jail cell. Just days before Henry's tragic death, another Native American woman was found dead in a jail cell. She was arrested for an alleged bond violation over a traffic charge. Sarah Lee Circlebear was heard by her cellmate screaming for help prior to, to being found unresponsive in her cell. On July 12, Paul Castaway, a Native American who suffered from schizophrenia, was gunned down by police. According to witnesses, he was holding a knife to his own throat during an episode when police shot and killed him. Last December 30th, Alan Locke was shot and killed by police just one day after attending a protest against police brutality. Locke is a Native American man who attended a Native Lives Matter rally that was being held locally. Native American children are also victims of the state, as a recent report from Truthout pointed out earlier this month. According to the report in South Dakota, indigenous children make up 15% of the child population, but comprise more than half of the children in foster care. In order to profit off the kidnapping of these children, South Dakota has claimed 100% of its foster children as special needs, for the past 10 years in order to reel in extra money. The trial protective system in South Dakota is incentivized by 79,000 bonus per native child. Wow. 
and Cablevision Systems, 336,000. Representing banks, corporations, and medias. Where Bernie, uh, his top ten donors are Machinist Aerospace Workers Union, 95,000. Teamsters Union, 83,000. Uh, protecting uh, 13, 1.3 million people. United Auto Workers, protecting 390,000 people. 75,000. National Education Association, protecting public work, teachers, and staff. 69,000. Communication Workers of America. 65,000. Uh, United Food and Commercial Workers Union. 65,000. Labor, labor, Laborers. Laborers Union. 63,000. Carpenter and Joiners Union. 61,000. American Assistance for Association. Association for Justice, right? That's lawyers. Promoting a fair justice system. 60,000. And American Federation of State, County, Federal Employees. That's AFSCME. 59,000. Well, they could do a little better than that, AFSCME. They didn't well, do yeah, much. but I'm surprised they, well, they gave him the money and not... not uh, well, they probably have given Hillary I'm money. I'm sure before, but maybe not now. But who knows? Uh, I I I have a problem with that. If they're, if they're not giving, they're giving Bernie money, but I'll bet you they're giving her money too. But they it's didn't give her as much. Money, the big money. Yeah. Like that. Holy crap! What the CIA, NASA, military, and government doesn't want you to know. This goes far beyond surveillance. I thought we'd mention this in a lot. Edward Snowden, former intelligence contractor, has leaked the very first documentation that approves that proves the existence of clandestine black budget operations. Yeah. Not surprised. Uh, Stone Stone knows everything here. Okay. It says Edward Snowden, former intelligent contractor, has leased the very first documentation that proves the existence of clandestine black operations. Programs that are extremely classified dealing with technology information and more. Did we really need this leak in order to believe that black budget program operates in secrecy? No. Many people will tell you that the existence of black budget programs are obvious and that they didn't need any official document to prove it, but this still helps. The United States has a history of government agencies existing in secret for years. Mm -hmm. The National Security Agency was founded in 1952 his existence was hidden until the mid-60s. Really? Yeah. That's all. Hmm. So, I wasn't aware of that. I mean, um, uh, even more secretive in the National Reconnaissance Office, uh, which was founded in 1960, but remained completely secret for 30 years. Yeah. We are talking about special access programs. For these, we have unacknowledged and waived SAPs. These programs do not exist publicly, special but they programs, yeah. special, yeah. But they do indeed exist. They are better known as deep black programs. A 1997 U.S. Senate report described them as so sensitive that they are exempt from standard reporting requirements to the Congress. The Washington Post revealed that the Black Budget Documents report a staggering 52.6 billion dollars that was set aside for operations in the fiscal year 2013. Although it's great to have this type of documentation in the public domain proving their existence of these black budget programs, 
The numbers seem to be off according to some statements made by some very prominent people who've been involved in the defense sector for years, but there's a lot of evidence to suggest that these programs are not using billions of dollars, but trillions of dollars that are unaccounted for. Here is a statement given by Canada's former Minister of National Defense, Paul Heller, in 2008. It is ironic that the U.S. would begin a devastating war allegedly in search of weapons of mass destruction when the most worrisome developments in this field are occurring in your own backyard. It is ironic that the U.S. should be fighting monstrously expensive wars allegedly to bring democracy to these countries when itself can no longer be called, be called a democracy, when trillions, and I mean thousands of billions of dollars, have been spent on projects which both the Congress and the Commander-in-Chief know nothing about. We are all about large amounts of unaccounted for money going on, going into programs we know nothing about. There has been several congressional inquiries that have been noted, have noted billions, even trillions of dollars, that have gone missing from the Federal Reserve System. On July 16, 2001, the front of the House Appropriations Committee, uh, Secretary Donald Rumsfeld, stated, um, the financial system of the Department of Defense are so snarled up that we can't account for some $2.6 trillion in transactions that exist. That's the believable. Um, one day later, they bonded a uh, 911 hit. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, shortly after. That was, oh, let's see, November. That was July when he said that. August, September, October, September. So two months later. Boom. Right? Yeah, we really don't hear about black budget programs, about people who have actually looked into them. However, the topic was discussed in 2010 by Washington Post journalist Dana Priest and William Arkin. Their investigation lasted approximately two years and concluded that America's classified world has become so large, so unwieldy, and so secretive that nobody knows how much money it costs, how many people it employs, or how many programs exist within it, within it or exactly how many agencies do the same work. Uh, we're almost time out, and want to let's see uh, end tonight's show by saying thank you for joining us. And, yep. uh, and I think it'd be fun. We're going to be tuning into the debates tomorrow. Yeah, I, hope you, I hope you join the debates tomorrow with everybody yeah. else in the country and uh, take a look at see what kind of idiots we're dealing with. And uh, you know, we'll, I'm sure we'll be hearing more and more reports on it and have some funny videos. Well, you certainly know what Leo thinks of it. He'll be writing about that oh, on yeah. his oh, yeah. on and, his website. Uh, oh, it turns out, too, before I go, that Congressman confirms, GOP Congressman confirms John Boner does not have the votes to remain Speaker. Whoa. Uh -huh. Isn't that something? Huh? Oh, well. And one more thing to end tonight. College tuition has increased by 1,120 percent since 1978. Medical care has increased by 600 percent. Food has increased by 244 percent. Shelter has gone up by 380 percent. Meanwhile, the pay of typical workers rose just 10 percent. Minimum wage workers fell by 5.5 percent. And average CEOs increased by 937 percent. And this is put out by EPI Bloomberg U.S. Labor Department. 
no surprise. All right. And society has become so fake that the truth actually bothers people. That's probably true, too. Uh, I like that. Uh-huh. Anyway. All right. I want to thank you, folks. Have a wonderful evening. Yeah, good night, folks. Thanks for tuning in. And are you going to be on tomorrow night, Leo? Uh, no, because I'm going to be watching the Oh, that's right. We're going to be watching the debates. So we're going to be watching the Republican debates, which is uh, unbelievable. We're going, to, we're going to watch the early one and the later one. Oh, oh, we're doing the, the cocktail time, too. Yeah, yeah, well, first we watch... Well, I'll we'll have a few margaritas at, around that time <laughs> and I'll have supper and watch the watch the happy hour debate <laughs> with all the major losers. And then and then we'll move on to the comedy hour where the, yeah. the other... Yeah, the, ca- the cast of clowns. The hysterical stuff. So, so good night, everybody. All right. Good night, folks. Have a great evening. Yeah.